Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today, nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario. Very much looking forward to today's episode, but I do want to say just off at the top that this week we are discussing sexual harassment and we are doing it with some detail in the context of a very important story. So just want to let you know up front and if that is something that you don't want to listen to for whatever reason, just want to let you know up front that that is the subject matter for today's episode and it may be difficult for some folks to hear a couple of the stories that are told on the show. But as I said, it's a very important story as told by my guest today, Bonnie Robichaud, in her new book, It Should Be Easy to Fix. And that name might be familiar to some of you out there as in 1977, Bonnie started a new job with the Department of Defense in North Bay, Ontario. And while there, she was subjected to sexual harassment by a supervisor. And that started a very lengthy process through which Bonnie tried to assert her rights as a worker and overcome efforts by the Department of National Defense to silence her and to ostracize her and really to make her life unpleasant in an effort essentially to silence her. And and over a decade after the initial incident, the case finally went before the Supreme Court, which ruled in favor of Bonnie. And in its ruling stating that employers are responsible for maintaining a respectful and harassment-free workplace. And so the book is Bonnie's memoir, recalling the as I say, very lengthy process through which she eventually ended up at the Supreme Court, the various levels it took before she arrived at the Supreme Court with this case. It's a very powerful story. And Bonnie is a wonderful advocate, not only for the story, but for all women who have been subjected to sexual harassment in the workplace. And as we talk about, obviously, these issues still persist. But through people like Bonnie and and her incredible conviction and strength through the whole process, the legal precedent through which employers became responsible exists. And even though it's all too slow, issues of sexual harassment are increasingly addressed within all organizations and certainly the military. It has been well profiled. The issues still exist there, which makes this book extremely timely. So I was very much looking forward to the opportunity to speak with Bonnie, and I found the conversation moving and powerful, and hopefully you will as well. So let's get right into my discussion with Bonnie Robichaud. All right, and Bonnie Robichaud joins me now from just across the city here in Ottawa. I think the first interview we've done with somebody in Ottawa, not in person, uh, which is always uh, unfortunate, but the reality of the moment in which we live. So, Bonnie, I'm very pleased that you've made the time to speak with me this afternoon. I'm very pleased to be here. So let's get right into the book, again, titled It Should Be Easy, and it's your memoir of your experience pushing back and challenging the culture of sexual harassment in D&D in, in your case. So let, let's get into it and, and talk about why now uh, to tell this story. This is what I'm curious about, because as we talked before we started, obviously a timely issue. These issues have not gone away at D&D or other government departments, certainly the RCMP. There's a lot of talk 
in that institution as well. So, so why now for you to come forward, write this book, tell this story in this way? Well, when I retired, I was having too much fun, although I wrote a draft of the book, which was still available. And then it, I started actually working on it about five years ago, five and a half years ago. I needed somebody to help me get started, get to the an, an editor, help put it together. I, I, I couldn't just write it by myself. I needed help. And so I got help about five years ago. And it unfortunately has taken this long to get to where it is today. Well, I, that's sort of the nature of publishing, right? That it, it always kind of, there's these hiccups here. And then certainly the past two years, everything has been held up, uh, no, no question about it. But when, when you sat down a few years ago to write it, what was your in, intention behind it? Because obviously it's a personal story. It's your story. There's a lot of instructive material for anyone coming to the book that they can take away from it. But was your goal to continue to, to challenge and, and shed light on the realities of what it was like for you and, and certainly other people within DNZ? Or was there some other motivation that made you want to go ahead and, and put this all down on paper? Well, I definitely, I still wanted to challenge things because from what I've been hearing in the, and reading in the news, not much, is, not enough has changed in national defense. I mean, I'm disappointed that the uh, letter that they sent me as an apology, which was ordered by the Human Rights Commission, that that's all that, that happened. And I know I was a pain in their side, but instead of a problem, I could have been a solution. I am a solution, but I wasn't enough of a solution in national defense because their goal was to get rid of me. It took them a long time to do it. and. I still had to sign a non-disclosure agreement to, to for it to happen, and and it's, it's a long story. It's just very disappointing that more wasn't done corrected. It's not enough to have policies and all this. If the policy isn't acted on and it isn't sincere and the goal of the employer is to cover it up or get rid of the complainant who then becomes the problem, not the person who's doing the harassing. It's never going to get better. Right. Very, very well said. And so let, let's get into some of the specifics of the case and the, what the book is about. So if we go back to 1977, you get hired on at DND. In North Bay, I've spent some time in North Bay. I have an undergraduate degree from Nipissing University, so I know about how strong that uh, the presence is, maybe not as much as it was back in the 70s of, of national defense in North Bay. But what attracted you to that position and wanting to work for DND and, and going to work for the federal government? Well, I had part-time jobs with no reliable hours and minimum wage, and I wanted a a job that paid better, had steady hours. And I went to Employment Canada and told them I already had other debt, another debt and job. So I wasn't interested in, you know, continuing that way. I said I wanted a full-time job at the good pay. And I'd said something with a future. I know I got it with the past, but that's that's what I wanted. I knew very little about D&D, &D, except that it's D&D. &D. And so 
she set me up for an interview for National Defense to be a cleaner, which a job I really liked. And it was steady pay, steady hours, union. It was a dollar an hour more than it was for the for the uh, sh- uh, short order cook I I had in North Bay. So, and I got full hours. So that, and that that sort of stuff makes a difference, and that still exists today. Like, and maybe I'm or, or probably we are more aware of it living in Ottawa, whereas people across the country might not quite get that that sense of how I don't want to say prized, but but people in this town tend to be proud to work for the government in part because of the balance it provides of you have the union protection, you do have pretty good pay independent of what Phoenix might do to you here and there. Uh, um, (laughs) uh, But, but that sort of stuff is important. So that is what attracts a lot of people currently to the job uh, for the federal government. But I don't know how much people take into account specific departments and cultures within departments. So when you arrived at D&D, what was your initial reaction to the internal culture there and the colleagues who you found yourselves found yourself working around? Well, the first day I started cleaning, I was not prepared for this. I was in a ward office in Sergeant's barrack. I had to open the cupboard doors so I could get the sheets to do the beds. They were all the, the co- inside of the cover doors were completely covered with Playboy centerfolds. It was my first day and it was my a temporary position. So I was only there for fill in. Uh, someone was off sick. I had not expected that. And I found it rather embarrassing. My, my children were still too young to be going through those magazines. And so there weren't any around the house and I had no reason to have them. So I was kind of shocked, but it was temporary and I wouldn't be staying there. So that's what I saw. Yeah. And that's a indication of what is acceptable, right? Or what is deemed acceptable by the people in power. And that's just one indication of that. So as you continued your career uh, within DND, at what point did you realize just how problematic the situation was in terms of the harassment that you were subjected to uh, uh, as you went to work? Like, uh, how long did it take for that to manifest itself and for you to want to seek out a way to resolve the situation? It wasn't until the uh, competition came up for a lead hand cleaner. I didn't realize that the foreman who had started in May didn't really want me to apply for the job, but management was kind of lax and I figured I can complain about it or apply for the job. So I applied for the job. Now I should have had greater clues when he yelled at me before the appointment. My appointment was done for the interview was done on my day off, but I figured I can do that job. I'm applying for it. So I'm still very naive about these things. I'm sort of like a, you know, a, a kid just out of high school. I was very naive, even though by this time I'm 34, 33, 34 years old with five children. But I had not worked in that kind of environment before. So you talk about the resistance that you got from the the person who doesn't want you to apply for the job. You get the job and then you, you have the, 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 there is harassment. In the first two months I was there, not 
understanding it, but I face a lot of gender discrimination on the basis of gender. I guess I sort of expected the men not to be happy to be working there, but I, in reality, I was never really given the authority to do my job. Therefore, the men I supervised took advantage of that and advantage of the, the foreman took advantage of them to make life very difficult. It wasn't until a good two months into my probation that the foreman started to sexually harass me. And he did that by taking, I cannot believe a grown man would do this. He, I, he ha, I had an appointment to go to his office at, a, at say, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I came into the office, and there he's sitting with a fully erect penis. Like, I have four boys. I have a girl, too, four boys. And I figured, kids do that kind of stuff. What is this grown man doing there? Then it clicks in. I may as well kiss this job goodbye. Hmm. And I figured, no, I'm just, I just told him he had a big ego. Thanks, but no thanks. But he kept, he kept that up, not with the full erect penis uh, every time, thank goodness, but the harassment. And before that, actually asked me questions about my personal life, which I didn't appreciate, but I wouldn't have done anything about it. I would have just tolerated. So what is the recourse that you have? There's the recourse of sort of in the moment that rejecting that behavior. But officially, what is the recourse that you had available to you as an employee of DND? Well, I waited till my probation was over. I then put in a complaint to my union local official uh, just to tell them. And when that didn't work, I put in another to whom it may concern letter. And when the harasser came back to work, by the way, I told him that nothing on earth would convince me to tolerate this kind of behavior. Thank goodness my probation was over. I had told my husband I've gone to counseling. And he came back and started harassing me as though I had never said anything. So I walked out the door and said, whatever takes under the sun, I would never, ever let him do that again. But the recourse is once I'd done that, I could put in grievances, which I did. My union local did sign nine of the 10, but at that time, it was hard for a woman to get support from the union regarding sexual harassment. Right, because it speaks to the old boys club nature of not only the job, but the union as well. And that had that reputation at the time. I don't know how much it still has that reputation today, but th that's the reality of a lot of this is that probably fair to say that the union rep who you talk to would be friends with the person who is doing the harassment or certainly know him. Uh, I, I would think so. And, uh, and the reason the book is named as it is, is because no other grievance had ever gone through it before. And when I talked to a military official, he said, well, nobody's complained before. And I said, then it should be easy to fix. I didn't know the extent of the problem of sexual harassment at that time. But I endured two and a half months of excruciating sexual harassment uh, and asking for 
sex and how we can do it and all these other things that went on in those two months, which is explained in the books. And I wasn't going to take no for an answer. It was going to go through the process. So when you started and that, that obviously that story of you saying, well, it should be easy then uh, certainly cues up the rest of the book and just how long it, it took and, and how it wasn't in fact very easy. But when you went to the union and you first re- made your report and when you said to the, the union rep that it should be easy then, did you expect it to be easy? Like you, you mentioned earlier that you felt coming in, maybe you were na- a little naive to some of these issues. But at that point, did you think, well, they'll just fire this guy and I'll be on my way and I'll have a successful career? Or, or did you well, did you kind of foresee some of the hurdles that were going to be put up in front of you as you pursued this case? Uh, no, I didn't. I, I expected maybe the harasser would have a month without pay and then I would just keep on working and he would keep doing his stuff. But my first grievance answer said that it, uh, how could I have waited so long knowing fully well it would mean immediate dismissal? Well, I didn't wait long at all considering that I told my union before, just shortly after he went on holidays and then I told him again when when he came back. The reason there was two months, which is not long between when I made up my mind to go to a third party and when the grievances were written was because he was on holidays and then I had my holidays. And then it was another week to get the grievances written up with a regional rep from Kingston because my local kept saying things like, well, it's not, uh, it's not that we have other people with complaints and, you know, it's not that important. You're not the only one, that kind of thing. It was actually only a week. It, it felt a lot longer. So we'll see how that goes. And that's just the start of what ends up being a, a very lengthy process. And I'm curious for you, like, at what point did you realize how long this was going to take and eventually it gets to the Supreme Court it, it becomes a, a real major landmark case, if you will, in the history of this country. And you're one of the the early battles within D&D that takes place. And you put up and there was so much resistance and so much pushback to you in what you were trying to accomplish. So I'm just curious of like, as you're going through the process at any point, because this would be my or what I think my reaction to the legal side of the case would be is like this it would be your initial reaction. It should be easy. It should be easy to deal with this. And yet we have this real long protracted legal battle that takes place. And just as it's happening, what was your reaction to it? First of all, I didn't, I, I knew that it wouldn't be solved on base when at the second for the second level grievance hearing, my representative said that the regional rep from Kingston was not allowed to come. I was uh, very stressed. I had no, and I was quite angry. And what I did was I saw a newspaper article about sexual harassment and to go to the Human Rights Act Commission. So I wrote the Ontario Human Rights Commission in between. Then my re- union steward said, yes, Marie can come. But in the meantime, I'd already written a letter. I didn't even know that I should be writing 
to the federal human rights. I got all the rest of the information and then started that process. So that happened between grievance hearing number one and grievance hearing number two. So first of all, they didn't know, the union didn't know. I don't think the military knew that I had contacted them. And so that started a whole other process. I also knew very early on, which is like just within weeks of the grievances going in, that this complaint would not be solved on the base. So it it, it, it would not, had I not gone to the Human Rights Commission, it would, I would have lost my job just the way other women would have lost my job. The base commander had already said that likely they wouldn't continue to employ me. Their method is to get rid of the victim or the complainant rather than solving the problem or dealing with the harasser. They dealt with the harasser in a way that would solve the problem, then would start getting somewhere. But if they don't do it, and the whole system is the complainant has gotten me gotten rid of, which they did get rid of me. That took quite some time. Nothing's going to change except for the for the working for those working for the military. Yeah, yeah as you say, it's you're you're addressing the wrong issue if you're trying to get rid of the the complainant, the person who's bringing this forward. Like it's that's the wrong way to to actually address the core issue. And and you mentioned too that other women had been relieved of their duties or fired from uh, D&D for making similar complaints. Or what was that process like for you of, you know, I, I would imagine other women started to reach out to you as the case got more traction, as it started to be, uh, you know, go forward uh, within the legal system. So what was that like for you to have other women be reaching out? And, and what was that kind of community network that was built over the course of the 11 years that this case took. It was, it was very empowering because the knowledge I gained and, and what I'd learned of how the employer dealt with it was very empowering. And, and it also, uh, during this process, I also wrote a booklet on how to fight workplace sexual harassment assault. Uh, sponsored by the uh, Ontario government, which was sort of a how-to booklet. Like if someone gives you advice and whose interest are they giving that advice, which would let you think about, well, maybe that's not such a good idea to follow that advice because their interest is for you to go away. Your interest is to stay. So you really have to think things through as to how you could go. I just want to say, though, the when... After, like, it went to the Public Service Commission when the grievances were going through, I like, I wrote them, and they're the ones that suggested it go to the Human Rights Commission, who also told me that this was a complaint that was the first complaint that they had dealt with within, through the Act. So they were testing the Act, and my complaint was the one that was going to be doing that which gave me an advantage as to going through the complaint process, the complaint process in the legal system. Well, what was that advantage? Why, why would your being the first give you that advantage? What, what edge did that give you? Well, they hired a lawyer 
at their expense. And a very competent lawyer, which really, really made a difference. And also, when D&D were determined or where they believed that they could get me fired, I had a lawyer to stop them. Also, when the harasser sued me, I had a lawyer to represent me. Now, the harasser, I'm sorry to say, is not like relied, I think, too heavily on getting away with it. Maybe that's the best way to word it. So when he put in a slander action, I'd already had my complaint before the Human Rights Commission. Uh, it was going to tribunal, and I had a lawyer. And I, and I call it, I had my ducks in a row. Right. So I wasn't, like, panicking. I mean, I'd been warned by the Public Service Commission that if I put my complaint through, I might get sued. But I was determined not to be put off, and I told her, I'm not going to worry the rest of my life about what will or won't happen. If it doesn't happen, I have nothing to worry about it. And if it does, I'll deal with it. So I didn't like being sued, but him waiting for two years to do it is not something that worried me that much. If it was going to be affected, it would have had to have been done right away. Why he didn't do it right away, trying to save money, I don't know. That information was is not available to me. Right. And that's one of those tactics that you still see where people try to sue victims as a means to silence them and kind of scare them, intimidate them, or have the cost of hiring a lawyer potentially be prohibitive to them. And therefore, everything that the complaint itself gets gets dropped. I believe they're called slap suits. And so, so you could talk about that. Uh, so yeah, having that lawyer would certainly... Uh, be an advantage uh, for you to have that individual there knows the system uh, and and can help you out in that regard. And so eventually the court or the case gets to the Supreme Court. Well, we have a few court decisions. I had the, the, the first decision said, uh, this is Professor Abbott from Carleton University, that he believed me that the harasser wasn't credible, but he decided that I did what I did voluntarily, which I didn't. But because it was going through human rights, there was the opportunity for a review tribunal. Human rights decided they got what they wanted. Yes, sexual harassment is discrimination on the basis of sex. I didn't do this voluntarily. I had the opportunity to appeal. The lawyer was hired from an outside firm, so I was able to use the same lawyer who had all that information and knowledge and so on to appeal. And that was appealed to the review tribunal where the employer and the harasser were found liable. Then I would imagine the Department of Justice decided that they would appeal it to the Federal Court of Appeal. But after the review tribunal decision, the union said that they would pay my legal fees because I paid the legal fees up front for the review tribunal. So they reimbursed me for that and paid for the legal fees going to the Federal Court of Appeal. Then National Defense still don't forget their goal is to get rid of me as they weren't able to fire me, wanted me to take three years leave with pay, tuition and books and go to uh, for university and get a job somewhere else in the government and pay relocation costs if that were necessary. 
but they wanted me to give up my right to go to the Supreme Court. That I refused to do. And with a lot of encouragement from other from others to take it, I turned it down, had my press release, and phoned up the negotiator from the Public Service Commission. And I had the agreement, copies of the agreement made and my press release and ready to distribute. Because when I said I'm going to put this out, I put it out. Uh, so they changed the agreement to allow me to go to the Supreme Court. That's how that happened. I also put out a national newsletter after 1984 uh, because I bought a photocopier. Yeah, so you're like your your own publicist and putting forth the, all this information and making sure that your message, your information gets out in an accurate way. And the empowerment to, that comes from that are, uh, is really remarkable to to look back on as for for me as I as I went through the book. So once we get to the Supreme Court level and the court rules in your favor, what was that moment like for you the first, when you when you got that decision? like how how did you react and and can you remember some of the specifics of just what that feeling was? The feeling was, you know, you've really got credibility. It's really good for your self-esteem when seven Supreme Court justices unanimously set have a decision in your favor and find the employer liable for the vicarious, you know, for the discrimination that happens within the workplace. So it was a big highlight for sure. And so much so that I, because I'm living in North Bay, I go to Ottawa and put a, put a, an offer to purchase a house to, to move here to Ottawa, which I did while I was still there for the uh, Supreme Court decision. It gave me some control over my life as to where I was going to live. So why then move to Ottawa? Like what, what was the motivation to do that? Obviously there's sort of the, the issues in, in North Bay, but particularly Ottawa, what was the motivation to come here? Well, two reasons. If I want a job with the federal government, uh, where better to get it than the public service capital of Canada? Yep. And the second reason, I wasn't finished yet with this case. I wanted to go back to the review tribunal for damages, although my agreement said I couldn't. But the way I felt is national defense or justice did their best to try, even with agreeing to allow me to go to the Supreme Court still did what they could to stop it from going to the Supreme Court. So I said, you didn't hold up to your end of the deal, and I'm not holding up mine. <laughs> Which is great. Then, then we have one more thing is that non-disclosure agreement. Yeah. And I didn't really get the damages that I, of course, that I was hoping for. But if it did nothing else but open up that agreement and make it public, because that agreement, those kinds of agreements, go, they have to die with you. At the time, I was still, besides being worn out when I signed it, I also was doing a lot of press releases and so working publicly, but that agreement wasn't right. My lawyer says, well, you'll get better with this agreement than you will with what you can get from human rights. But my goal wasn't a financial one. My goal was an harassment-free workplace. That silencer agreement didn't give me an harassment-free workplace. 
And he said, if you don't sign it, I won't represent you. Even with that, I, I turned down that agreement. That's how important continuing on was. Yeah, and non-disclosure agreements are still common within these types of cases, just in general. When people leave corporate positions under certain circumstances, non-disclosure agreements are common. And and what would you have the solution to this be? Like, what, what is your general, I think we can all sort of assess what your position is on non-disclosure agreements, but do you have any sense of how to resolve this so that individuals in a position like yours aren't subjected to the intimidation, the threats, and the silencing that these agreements are intended to create? I personally believe they should be non-enforceable. They should be illegal. My agreement was not verified through human rights. The person who is forced, or I'll say forced to sign them, is so wore out. By this time, it was six years before they actually talked to me about something. And those six years was going through the levels of the grievance procedure, the levels of the human rights, through the Federal Court of Appeal. This man was still my supervisor. It took two and a half months before, after the Federal Court of Appeal decision before they fired him. They didn't even tell me. And two days later, somebody had a little argument with me, like not anything that you should be fired for. And I was fired like two days after him. And then I had to struggle to and grieve. A grievance had to be put in for me to get my job back. And the goal again was to get rid of me. Well, I wasn't the wrongdoer. Yes, things were pretty crummy while I was exposing what was happening. But that's all that's on D&D and the harasser. That needn't have been on me. I just wanted to do my job. I have five young children, age 6 to 11. I didn't want to be spending so many hours a day typing up letters, sending them out, being scared to go to work, being called into the office, being threatened by different things. Uh, the book puts in... Not everything's in that book. Who wants to read a lot of yuck-yuck? I only put enough in to give somebody an idea. And by then, my notes were also in the Library and Archives Canada. But even then, more didn't need to go into that book for anyone to realize the person who makes the complaint is the one that's seen as the problem. If they're the ones that are seen as the problem, they should be seen as a solution to why are good people losing their jobs and keeping people who are behaving the way this man was behaving. What would your advice be, if, if you had any, to anyone today who is listening to this, who's going to read the book, who might be going through a similar situation, who who is uh, subjected to harassment, intimidation in the workplace? Obviously, this is a story that provides to me, you, know, you, you mentioned the word empowerment earlier when you finally got that Supreme Court decision. But for someone who might be going through it and might be, as I said, subjected to the same threats, the same intimidation that, that you had to endure, what would you say to somebody who in 2022 is, is still going through something like this? Make sure you have supportive people around you. 
particularly if your family, a lot of families have broken up over these kinds of complaints. So that's, that's one thing. There are more lawyers who I haven't personally called that will take on these kinds of complaints. There, I don't think there were too many or were any. It wasn't a common thing. Now, if you look, go to Google and you mention sexual harassment, the names of several lawyers come up. So there's that to explore. I also wrote that booklet, A Guide to Fighting Workplace Sexual Harassment Assault, which you can find on Google by putting in my name. You have to maybe look for it a bit. But somebody put it on there, and I've never figured it should come off. It has good information in it. And and it it talks about not not everybody can fight it. It's expensive. It's very time-consuming. Maybe not so bad now. You have to have the resources to do it. I had the resources. I knew how to type and file. And and I also knew that this behavior was just totally unacceptable. I didn't know that I'd be the one they tried to kick out. But but I had yeah, I had support at home and we were both working full time and I'm raising my children on the cheap and because we could do that uh, 40 years ago. But I go through in that booklet about some of the reasons why it kind of warns you and some of the reasons, you know, don't feel bad that you can't complain because, you know, someone in the family is ill, your own health isn't as good as it needs to be. It's a very draining process. Doesn't mean it can't be done, but you have to look at your own personal resources, which means who can support you, what your finances are, what your energy level is, what the situation is in your family with uh, with the health of your children, what age they are. These kinds of things have to be looked at because once you start, uh, you, you need to keep going. As we've, we've talked about and as we've seen in the, the press, these issues at D&D and, and other places have not disappeared. It still happens, but certainly Bonnie, through your story, both in telling it today and and, in the book, but in the moment too, and pursuing it with the the passion that you had and the strength that you showed throughout the process, certainly it's a, a better world in which to pursue these types of cases and to continue to root out this type of harassment in workplaces across the country. And uh, I just would like to say thank you for sharing your story, not only with me, but in the book. I really enjoyed the opportunity to go through it. Well, th- thank you for, for asking the questions. That, and I think, well, the culture, there is a cultural change, and you can't make that if no one knows about it. Possibly I could have won this complaint without going to the union, but I didn't do it to get the, the, the money at the very end of it. I got it to change the culture in our society. It's not funny anymore for a boss to chase the secretary around the desk. That's no longer laughed at. They don't put that in jokes anymore. So that is what had to change. Even if I could have written my book 30 years ago when I had hoped to, it wouldn't be as effective as now because now people understand that is improper behavior in the workplace. We're there to work. We're there to work, do our job, get our pay, go home and be with our families or other interests, but not 
to be sexual furniture or be treated like we're a whore or all those other things because there's you know a prostitute gets gets paid i didn't get paid i didn't get nothing other than a lot of pain and the person that did it i i kind of think maybe he wanted to be a porn star but that was not the place to do it and and the thing is other people around me knew this was happening i suspect strongly the military personnel that looked into this believed it but it wouldn't have mattered they didn't care whether it was true or it wasn't true whether they believed it or not they just this made a decision that they weren't going to do anything to change what was happening i mean you don't wait six years to fire the man and then two and a half months after the federal court of appeal finds you guilty if if you were serious what happened to if i could prove it it would mean immediate dismissal it wasn't immediate and i did i did my end of it they didn't do theirs that's why it's so important to continue to talk about this and to talk about not only your story but uh, all the other stories to continue to change And, and as you said in a professional environment where everyone who's there is a professional and deserves to be treated professionally and uh, you, everyone goes, you do your job and you leave. And that's what it should be. And and slowly the culture is starting to change, but uh, it takes a lot of work and a lot of commitment from everybody and, and having access to people like you, Bonnie, and stories like yours uh, that certainly highlight that. Before we close, yeah. my son is a specialist in St. Catherine's and there was a doctor doing this kind of, with this type of behavior at the hospital and he was warned and he said and he said if you do it again you're out of here they will not put up with that behavior in in at the hospital and nurses shouldn't be working hard to make sure they are not working with this particular doctor the doctor changes behavior and the nurses are still working that's the kind of changes that have to be uh, have to be made and are made, and sometimes the harasser actually kills the woman if if he doesn't get his way. So that is why we have to change it, because that won't change as long as men keep hiding that behavior and having the women pay for it. Very well said, Bonnie. So again, the book is It Should Be Easy, uh, Bonnie Robichaux. Uh, thank you so much for uh, your story and for spending some time with me this afternoon. And thank you very much. So there you have it, my conversation with Bonnie Robichaux. And I thank her again for her time and, of course, the book. It Should Be Easy to Fix. Uh, as you can get the sense from that discussion with Bonnie, some heavy issues, obviously, given the subject matter in there, but uh, an important book and telling a very critical story in this country's history. So encourage you to check it out if you can. So that's it for this week. Thank you everybody for listening. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show, wherever it is you get your podcast, do the likes and ratings, comments, all that stuff to help grow the show, help other people find us here on the History Slam. Of course, do head on over to activehistory.ca. All sorts of great written content over there on the website. 
You can find all of our past episodes as well under the podcast tab. And if you want to let me know what you want to hear in the future, you can find me on Twitter at Deshaun Graham or through email, historyslam at gmail.com. So thanks again, everybody, for listening. We'll be back with you again next week. But until then, if you're out, you see Enrico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.